0: Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find strange, convoluted, and seemingly impossible connections between two completely random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today, we will be looking into the connection between the electrocardiogram, a non-invasive measure of the heart's electrical activity, and the Golden State Killer, a serial killer and rapist who was active in Northern and Southern California from 1973 until 1986, Let's start with the electrocardiogram, also known as the ECG, or sometimes EKG. Why is it a C or a K? Well, it depends if you're using the English or the German spelling, which are pronounced the exact same way, but luckily this is not a language podcast. The EKG is used to measure the overall conduction of muscles of the heart through electrodes on the patient's skin. The idea that muscles in the body are controlled by electricity all started back in the late 1700s with an Italian physician, who was also like five other things that almost all nobles were apparently back then. Named Luigi Galvani. Galvani found that if you apply a small current to the leg muscles of a recently deceased frog, the muscles would contract. Kind of gross, but he proved that muscles could be controlled and in turn may be controlled in the body by electricity. Or back then it was probably something like isolated static control and the resuscitating of appendages of a recently disposed of amphibinoid, but like, you know, in Italian. The concept was so groundbreaking that the results of his experiments made ripples all across the world and found their way to a fancy villa above Lake Geneva during a thunderstorm of June 1816 where a young woman who was in a scary story competition with her lover, her sister, and her sister's lover used Galvani's ideas on reanimation to imagine a mad scientist raising the dead. Galvani's experiments were a noted inspiration for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's kind of a cool little tangent, I think, but let's get back to the main story. So Galvani came up with the principle that the body is using electricity to do stuff. Groundbreaking, earth-shattering, horror fiction-inspiring. But then it was pretty much just used for parlor tricks for a while, which are fun, but just less earth-shattering. But then some pretty horrible people realized that if you put electrodes in the right place, say, inside the chest and onto the heart, electrical impulses came out of those muscles too. And you could also shock the heart to make it stop and sometimes make it start again. Lots of dogs and horses were volunteered to show this, but all in the great endeavor of humans knowing stuff, I guess. And along came Mr. Wilhelm Einthoven, the man who really begins our journey today. With more science that I really want to get into right now, Er Einthoven devised a way for those electrical impulses from the heart to be read on the skin. Using a string galvometer, which was used in those other heart experiments, he was able to amplify the electrical conduction coming from his own skin. These impulses powered two big magnets that moved a string according to the amplitude and frequency of the electrical current it was picking up. Shine a bright light behind that string on photosensitive paper, and voila, a continuous analog printout of the electrical impulses of the heart. In German, the electrocardiograph, EKG. Eindhoven broke the dams wide open in the world of electricity and medicine. But like everything in science, you need a set way of measuring things in order for experiments to be replicated. To do this, he decided to develop a standard system of measuring and recording these new electrical waves. We call the basic limb-lead diagrams in EKGs today Eindhoven's Triangle. In actuality, it was a theory that was later proved with better technology and better measurements, but all in all, a new paradigm in the world of medicine. And like all paradigm shifts in science, after it was debated and scrutinized and deemed to be nice and pretty, Eindhoven took a trip to Sweden and was awarded a nice little gold medal with the face of a guy who came up with TNT on it. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 1924. The Nobel Foundation is probably one of the most renowned scientific societies on Earth. A Nobel Prize is part of our lexicon, and we all know that a Nobel winning anything definitely deserves some praise. Even if we only kind of get a gist of what someone did to win that award. An author must have wrote one hell of a book to become a laureate. Lots of black hole stuff in the physics camp. Math, uh, good luck trying to trying to figure out what those guys are talking about. But it's a prestigious honor that we all understand. There's an aura of superiority and in inness. It's like a frat full of nerds. The Nobel Prize is like the Academy Awards. And much like how during Oscar season we hear that some film won some award from some obscure film festival, or a guild of lighting engineers, or a society of supporting actors, there are countless other awards in the sciences that don't get the recognition like the popular kids do. Like, for example, the John B. Goodenough Award, yeah, really, for contributions to the field of materials chemistry. Or how about the Acid Medal given by the British Mass Spectrometry Society? Or the James T. Grady James H. Stack Award for Interpreting Chemistry from the American Chemistry Society? I I think we can kind of guess what that one's about. But of importance for our meandering story is the Charles Goodyear Medal, awarded by the Rubber Division of the American Chemical Society. This award was named after, you guessed it, Charles Goodyear, the self-taught chemist, like they all were in the 1800s, and discoverer of the process of vulcanizing rubber, and the namesake of the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, those nice folks with the blimp that really like sporting events. Now that we have delved into the weird nether regions of the scientific awards world, let's make our way out through a winner. In 1989, Jean-Marie Massaub, I think that's how you pronounce it, of the Michelin Tire Company was awarded the Charles Goodyear Medal. For his contributions in the early development of the radial tire. Good for you, Jean-Marie, but we're here for your corporate overlords. Our next step in the quest, Michelin Tire Company. You know, the big white chunky dude that kinda looks like the stave puff marshmallow man from Ghostbusters. But seriously, be happy that we have what he looks like now. Their ads at the turn of the twentieth century made him look like a dude who just like covered himself in white rubber tubing. His face is just god awful terrifying, even if you can call it a face. But Let's move away from him. Let's go to a different branch of the company. While Michelin has for sure made contributions to the automotive world over its long history, I want to focus on a promotional tool the company used to get people to drive more. Founding brothers Edouard and Andre Michelin decided to start printing out a yearly road book of maps and hotel and restaurant listings and advertisements. Tell the people it's out there, and they'll drive to see. In 1900, the first Michelin guide was distributed for free in France with simple car maintenance tools, road maps, hotel and restaurant locations and reviews, and petrol stations all to enjoy on your brand new Michelin tires. In 1904, a Belgian version was created, and up until World War I, additions were created for Algeria and Tunisia, the Alps and the Rhine, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Ireland and the UK, and areas of North Africa. It was like a AAA magazine, except it was being given to you by a cross between Frosty the Snowman and a mummy with human hands and he's smoking cigars. Seriously, go look at the old Michelin Man, he is so freaking creepy. After the First World War, the brothers started to add ratings to the restaurants in their books, following the practices of other well-used travel guides, and started to actually charge for their book. Ratings of zero to three stars were used to rate restaurants, and the ratings were awarded by secret judges who would eat anonymously at the restaurants. The restaurants would only find out if they were well-reviewed when the new editions came out every year. Following World War II, the company became more selective and stringent on their ratings, only allowing a two-star maximum and limiting the number of stars they gave out in total. Only 38 restaurants in France were given a single-star rating in the 1950 edition. Soon, the stringent rating system filtered into the other country editions and became a huge point of pride or resentment from the restaurants. Restaurants were now rated with Michelin stars, and still to this day, any restaurant that has received a Michelin star in the 23 countries that the book is still published in will proudly proclaim and display that award and then upcharge you about $40 for a glass of table wine or something. I don't know, I've never been to one. Michelin stars are highly coveted and, in certain circles, required to legitimize a restaurant. While this can catapult chefs and restaurants into the limelight, the fall can also be catastrophic. In early 2003, an up and coming chef, Bernard Lusso, was running the three-Michelin-star restaurant La Côte d'Or. He was a big deal. He was decorated as a chevalier, I think the French equivalent of being knighted. Dude could cook. But in the later years of the 90s, rumors began to spread that new food trends, namely fusion styles of cooking that were popular with a more diverse and foodie crowd, would run restaurants like La Côte d'Or and chefs like Lousseau out. By February 2003, Lousseau was in debt and was battling serious bouts of clinical depression. While the rumors that his restaurant would lose one of the Michelin stars were rampant, they were more than likely only a factor in what would happen next. On February twenty-fourth, two 2003, Bernard Lusso ended his life. Other factors were definitely at play, and depression and suicide are unmistakably complex issues, but Lusso had worked to become a three-star chef in 17 years and reportedly told a fellow chef in the years before, quote, if I lose a star, I'll kill myself. As horrible as this story is it may ring a small bell to some people because a patron of le coté was american director brad bird who later used lusso's death as a plot inspiration in his 2007 disney pixar film ratatouille in which a famous french chef dies of grief after losing a coveted rating star in his paris restaurant and if that's not a turn of mood i don't know what is now as horrible as this is for the beginning of a children's story It does allow a wiry, gangly kitchen janitor at that restaurant to pretend to be an amazing chef while really being the puppet of the true chef, spoilers, a rat who loves to cook. And that rat was voiced by the amazing American comedian Patton Oswalt. Now, Patton is an Emmy and Grammy winning comedian who's been doing stand-up comedy since 1988, but I'm not here to talk about Patton. I'm here to talk about his wife, the late Michelle McNamara. Michelle grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, earned an English degree from Notre Dame, and received her MFA in creative writing from the University of Minnesota. She then moved to Los Angeles in 1997 to begin writing, but her passion was true crime, sparked by the unsolved murder of Kathleen Lombardo, who was murdered two blocks away from her home in Oak Park when she was a child. In 2006, she launched her true crime blog, True Crime Diary, and quickly launched herself into the true crime scene, or as wonderfully coined by South Park, Murder Point. She quickly became close friends with many other amateur crime fans, and they advocated for the use of everyday true crime fanatics and those fascinated by it to do at-home research becoming what was known as armchair sleuths to keep important unsolved or stalled investigations in the news and in the public eye. Another case that particularly fascinated Michelle were the unsolved rapes and murders attributed to three different perpetrators, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, and the Visalia Ransacker. She's attributed to linking these cases and their M.O.s to the same perpetrator, all of which were later linked via DNA evidence. Paul Holes, the former lead investigator in the crime lab from Contra Costa County in Northern California, later said that her persistence and tenacity allowed them to keep these cases alive. And in her research and blog posts and articles in Los Angeles Magazine, she coined a new name for this still unknown killer, the Golden State Killer. As she was finishing her book titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer, Michelle passed away in her sleep on April 21, 2018, from what the coroner ruled as an accidental overdose. Three days later, on April 24, 2018, authorities arrested Joseph James D'Angelo for the killings attributed to the Golden State Killer. He later pled guilty to the killings on June 29, 2020. The names of the victims he pled guilty to crimes against were Keith and Patrice Harrington, Manuela Withern, Janelle Cruz, Kate and Brian Maggiore, Barbara Manning, Robert Offerman, Gary Sanchez, Cherry Domingo, Claude Snelling, Charlene and Lyman Smith, and 13 unnamed Jane Doe's. Michelle's book, which was posthumously updated by the true crime writers Paul Haynes and Billy Jensen and her husband Patton, reached number two on the New York Times bestseller list in nonfiction, and reached number one when it was combined with its e-format. The HBO documentary based on Michelle's book premiered on June 28th, 2020, the day before the guilty plea was read in court. As of now, he is serving several consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Well, there it is whirlwind of stories and emotions and random little side stories but that is one way you can connect the electrocardiogram to the golden state killer thank you so much for listening to my just absolute rambling i'm doing this all by myself so thank you for bearing with me with the little technical bumps and little stutters as i figure all this out thanks also to an episode of the podcast imaginary worlds titled the year without a summer michelle mcnamara's book and the subsequent hbo documentary and to wikipedia proof that the internet has some benefit to human society. Uh, If you've got an idea about topics you want me to connect, text me. I mean, at this point, the only people really listening to this are people I probably know. Subscribe and like if you want, and I will see you on the last Friday of next month. A funny little tangent I wish I went down, but didn't. In the 2009 Academy Award-winning animated short film, Logorama, a team of Bibbindums, the official name of the Michelin Man, are members of a police squad that execute a raid on a creepy Joker-esque criminal played by Ronald McDonald. Stay safe out there.